Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast on the Questionable Endeavor Network where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler, Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well, just like our new listeners in the Dominican Republic have done. Now, personally, as a Boston Red Sox fan, I hope the World Series trophy will be making its way back to the Dominican very soon, led by Sox legend David Ortiz. Fingers crossed! Regarding our previous trivia mini-episode, I got some great feedback on it. And our number of plays was actually very strong as well. So I'm open to doing another trivia mini-sode sometime in the future. Stay tuned for that and feel free to play along at home. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's a privilege for me to welcome back to the show from the New Blood Rising podcast and 4CR Online, the author of a column called Woeful Wrestling Figures and the creator of the Raw Attitude podcast's amazing new logo, he is none other than... Mr. Martin Dixon. Martin, how have you been, and would you care to tell the Raw Attitude fans about your other projects? It's great to be back. It feels like we've done this before, but technical uh, technical problems yeah. scuppered the last time we did this. De- Deja vu. All over again. So, yeah, it's great to be back, as always. I love this kind of stuff. Yeah, Henry did it in the intro. Um, my current project slash, not job, because I'm not getting paid for it, but uh, time <laughs> time filler apart from appearing on New Blood Rising, is uh, woeful wrestling figures where I scour eBay, market stalls, discount stores for just weird examples of wrestling toys, be they official but weird, uh, hilarious knockoffs, or just terrible, you know, unofficial third-party things. Every week or so I try and get hold of some and just put them through the test to see if if they are actually terrible. Or a lot of fun, as I found with some of them. Oh, excellent! For instance, I've you know reviewed some of the infamous nineteen ninety eight WWF Maximum Sweat figures. Oh God! Um, I went through. I've managed to find and get a hold of a nineteen ninety eight WCW Giant with neck brace figure. With a neck. So what happened to the Big Show that his neck was injured? Uh, Kevin Nash happened. Oh, um, was that when he botched the power bomb or yes, whatever it was? And for some reason, WCW thought to commemorate that in a two pack. Oh my god. With... Did they have a, a figure for Sid's leg as well? <laughs> I think WCW had died by that point. Okay, alright. Uh... But it would it, they would have gotten it if, if they hadn't gone oh, out of definitely. business. Definitely. For sure. Yeah, I've been going through some original ECW figures I managed to get hold of. Some knockoffs, because like, uh, I've got some knockoffs in future columns, including a knockoff New Jack figure, which I couldn't believe oh, wow. I found, which came in packaging that featured bootleg photos of Chris Benoit and Crash Holly. Oh my god, okay. That's a little odd. And last thing I did was the new line of WWE zombie figures, the official ones. I managed to get hold of those and put them through the pace, and they're actually a lot of fun. Um, Excellent. So yeah, it's it's silly, it's stupid, it's childish, but I love it. And there's not too many things like this on the interwebs. I mean, there's plenty of stuff on the good figures, but they can't all be good. (laughs) 
So I, no. I, I take that bullet and get hold of some of the really, really rank ones. Excellent. Well, you're you're doing us all a tremendous service there. I think I've mentioned to you before that I have a massive collection of the late 80s, early 90s Hasbro figures, the plastic ones. Yeah, I, I can't get angry at those because they, they were no. my childhood. And they, they get a pass by being fun and having a, a style all of their own. Definitely. And some of them like just really have quote-unquote finishing moves that they come with that are not very good you know like i think andre the giants was literally like you could pull the torso back and then jut him forward and it would knock down the guy it was kind of kind of uh they mailed it in on the finishing moves but uh that did not prevent me from having a ton of fun with them as a kid exactly and i still yeah i I was gonna say i I still have them at home yeah i got my own personal wwf that i could book so you know bret hart was always the champion oh of course even before 1992 (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, well, I still have uh, some of the, the in, t- in terms of woeful wrestling figures, I mean, some of the Hasbro ones, like I have Repo Man and the Mountie and some of the ones that were kind of uh, forgotten. But, uh, but you know, still still have very uh, fond, fond memories of them. It, it is just an excuse for me to relive some aspects of my childhood and the childhood that I wished I had had, a, had I been bought later. There you go. Oh, and of course, New Blood Rising. I want to touch on that as well. So you guys obviously have you've gone through all the WCW late 90s Russo era pay-per-views. You went through the invasion and now you guys are on to doing every single ECW pay-per-view from beginning ECW all the way to the WWE ECW at the end, right? Yes. Yeah, we've uh, started started with uh, Bailey Legal 97 and we're going all the way through to December to December 2006. Oh God! Uh, it's still it's still early days as well. I think we're we're just about getting ready to drop like the third pay per view, which I think is Living Dangerously '98. Excellent. So if you've never checked the show out before, now is a very very good time. Uh, Absolutely. Again, through through iTunes, through Stitcher, through whatever, or on Twitter at New Blood Pod, we're just there. Now, thankfully, I'm now part of the team because I I jumped on mid um, invasion. Whereas before, I was head cheerleader and sometimes scriptwriter for uh, for the WCW ones. Fantastic. And so, actually, so is your next episode going to be going up on Monday or a week uh, from no, now? No, um, we're going to be, due to sudden illnesses, um, our last episode, which we put up on the sub-channel, which you can find still through New Blood Pod, was uh, three of us just getting together and discussing the current state of television versus cinema. Mm. But once we're back to full strength, that our head honcho Will is uh, is back to full health, we'll be tearing into some some good old wrestling soon. Oh, I didn't realize. So this is William Rankin. I didn't realize he was sick because he's supposed to join our next episode of the Rodditude podcast. Actually, he's, so he's doing okay, but he spent a weekend being very very ill. Oh my goodness! All right. Well, I'm gonna have to I'll have to talk with him about that. See if he needs a little extra time for uh, for when we have to record. Stay tuned, folks. Stay tuned. But yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully he's back on his feet, doing well very soon. Shoutouts to William Rankin. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, are you ready to begin kicking into the Raw Attitude podcast? I then, born ready. Beautiful. But I, I must admit, before we do get into it, though, I want to quickly recap something which happened on the same day as the episode of Raw we're about to cover, because I found it to be quite interesting. On this very day, May 18th, 1998, World Championship Wrestling filed a lawsuit 
against the World Wrestling Federation and the USA Network, seeking $2 million in punitive damages and an amount to be determined at trial in compensatory damages for repeated and continuous use of WCW trademarks on Raw, specifically related to D-Generation X's recent invasion of WCW. Now, interesting, WCW has taken a page out of the WWF's book because you may recall a few years prior, the WWF filed a lawsuit against them claiming that Scott Hall and Kevin Nash were intentionally being portrayed by WCW as invaders from the WWF. Is your head spinning yet, Martin? Because mine is beginning to spin a little bit. It is a little bit. Um, This also can go back even further, if I can get to show off some wrestling knowledge. When Ray Trailer, the big boss man, jumped to WCW, I think in 94, they billed him as The Boss. The Boss, right. And he was still wearing like the policeman get-up. Of course, the WCW... Sorry, the WWF didn't take kindly to that so uh, that was one of the first lawsuits between the two companies and thus that's why we got big bubba rogers and the guardian angel and yeah i like the i like just the concept of potentially you know the wcw announcers being like who's that wrestler oh he's the boss man (laughs) yes but I i don't know if they did that but they should have But in terms of this lawsuit, it's actually not solely related to DX's invasion. I'm actually going to list some of the other incidents that they mention in the lawsuit to back up their case because I found them pretty amusing. So here are some things that WCW cites in this lawsuit taken directly from from what they they cited in court. So this is what they're saying. Here are some other incidents they're uh, suing the WWF for. The billionaire Ted skits that aired on Raw in early 1996 – Jim Ross announcing on Raw in September 96 that Diesel and Razor Ramon were returning to the WWF when, in fact, other wrestlers, not Scott Hall or Kevin Nash, would be taking on those personas. Jim Cornette disparaging WCW and its wrestlers during a diatribe on the October 6th, 1997 episode of Raw. And yes, I will play a clip of that for you right here. You got a guy like Kevin Nash, 40 years old, trying to act like a teenager. As far as I'm concerned, the biggest no-talent in the business, he's got six moves, no mobility, and enough timing to come up, cover up for some of it. But what he does is he goes around and he manipulates. Kevin Nash had a multi-million dollar promotional company, the WWF, push him to the moon to make him a star, and then what does he do? He leaves, after he gives his word he's staying, so by the way, he's a liar too, he leaves and he goes to WCW for a big contract. And then you've got a guy, what, six, one, two, three kid, his name's Sean Waltman, whatever you want to call him. Well, as far as I'm concerned, the only reason that he's employed is because the other guys think that he's funny when he gets drunk and throws up on himself. You know why they're all employed, why they're all in the spot they are today? Because of Eric Bischoff, the boss of WCW, not the NWO. Look at the credits on their pay-per-view if you can get one for free. The idiot's name is on it. He's the boss of WCW. He works for Ted Turner, and he throws a billionaire's money around just like water so that he can have guys that he likes to hang out with. Because even more than being a mark, yeah, for his own face and his own voice, Eric Bischoff is a guy who's a big fan of hanging around studly guys with long hair and beards that smoke cigars and ride Harleys so that some of that can rub off on his little pansy-ass frame. D-Generation X spray-painting WCW on Jim Neidhart's rear, after which a WWF commentator said, quote, the only thing more humiliating would be to work for WCW. Sean Waltman returning to the WWF and ripping on Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff and claiming that Hall and Nash wanted to return to the WWF, but they were, quote, being held hostage by WCW. WWF giving Waltman the ring name X-Pac, contending that X-Pac was too similar to WCW's common law trademark name Six-Pac, and 
Hunter Hearst Helmsley imitating WCW ring announcer Michael Buffer during his ring introductions on WWF programming. Well, they certainly managed to put a stop to that. Now, for what it's worth, according to Wade Keller in the issue of the PW Torch from June 13, 1998, the WWF is, quote, not making a big deal out of the lawsuit, so apparently they thought they'd be able to have it dismissed in pretty short order. But anyway, that's where we are tonight, Martin. Clearly, WCW was just too frustrated to let these injustices continue. So what do you think about WCW suing the WWF for all of these minor infractions? It's delightfully childish. Yes. Considering that Bischoff would routinely go on Nitro and reveal results of the following show and, thus, right. and refer to them as likes of the World Whining Federation. Exactly. You had the likes of Hogan taking shots at Vince even back in 1995 saying that you know it was all him and it, I know that was in character but that's the kind of thing that basically the, the WF was saying about WCW so it's it's delightfully childish and it just shows what an ego trip the Monday Night War was on both sides absolutely this whole lawsuit just reeks of Eric Bischoff to me mm. you know what I mean because it seems like this is the only action he could think of to try and save face you know, when they, you know, he'd been quote-unquote embarrassed right. on TV. So they insult us on yeah. TV, we'll take them to, through them, them through the courts. Yep, and I'll challenge him to a match, and I'll challenge Vince McMahon to a match on pay-per-view, and there you go. And also, actually, as a quick side note, in our lost episode a few weeks ago, Martin, you actually did mention this lawsuit, and I have to give you a lot of credit for that because I hadn't even known that this had happened until I started doing the research for this episode. So people, let it be known, Martin Dixon knows his shit. <laughs> I don't know as much as I used to, but yeah, I, I still know some, some really random and bizarre factoids. Well, if you want to interject any of those, by all means, feel free. And on that note, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, May 18th, 1998, and we are actually live for the second week in a row. Now, that's a rarity for Raw at this time, since the WWF has tended to alternate live and pre-taped broadcasts week to week. This time out, they're in Nashville, Tennessee, in the creatively named Nashville Arena. Now, one complaint in advance, we're in Nashville this week, but neither Jeff Jarrett nor Tennessee Lee were on the show, not even in a dark match. Come on, WWF, what the fuck? Let my man Tennessee Lee return home triumphant. But anyway, we open with a recap of last week's festivities where Vince McMahon stacked the deck against Stone Cold Steve Austin in his upcoming match against Dude Love at Over the Edge by appointing himself as guest referee, Gerald Briscoe as guest timekeeper, and Pat Patterson as guest ring announcer. Vince then made himself Austin's tag team partner for the main event match on Raw against The Rock and D'Lo Brown, and he predictably ended up turning on Austin by hitting him with a clothesline. This caused the match to devolve into a massive brawl featuring DX, The Nation, Dude Love, and, of all people, Dustin Runnels. How will they follow that up tonight? Let's find out. Cue up the opening theme song, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. A few noteworthy signs include Eric Bischoff has no package. Eric Bischoff is a woman. I'm sensing a pattern here. Stone Cold wears panties. Legalized cockfighting. And Sable raped me. Now, I posted a picture of that last sign on our Twitter, at Pod. if you want to check it out. 
got quite a few likes and retweets, I must say. But um, anyway, were there any other quality signs out there that you noticed, Martin? I think the only one that I saw that you didn't mention was Bischoff Rapes Chickens. Yes. I also put a post, a picture of that one on our Twitter as well. Yeah. Bischoff Rapes Chickens. Apparently, in the Attitude Era, rape signs are very popular. <laughs> it's, it is. It's, it's a sign of the times. I said this on Twitter. Attitude Era signs are an absolute goldmine of comedy and face palms. Oh my like god, yeah. Go, oh, jeez. You know, your hand instinctively goes to your face. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I will give the fans credit, though, because one is a person saying Bischoff rapes chickens, but the other is someone saying Sable raped me. So it's not just it's not just accusing someone of rape. It's also the perpetrators uh, being taken to task in Stein form because Sable obviously raped that person and you know he was there to, to take her to task. So kudos there. It's not just accusing people. It's also the victims coming forward. So yeah, exactly. very, nobody, very admirable. Nobody has to suffer in silence. That's right. That's the last thing we want. Oh, um, quick point as well. I am sure, and I, I could not get the timing down on the freeze frame of this, I'm sure Bret Hart is still in the intro. You know when they have the... Is he really? I, when they have the shot of Austin walking through the warehouse and there's like guys yeah. in the ring. I'm yeah. sure they're still using the same ones that have Sid and Bret in. I think you're right. Yeah, it, it's very brief. It's like maybe a, like a half a second, but they you can. It's like that overhead camera shot of them fighting in the ring, right? Uh, yeah, I would love if anybody can prove whether it is or it isn't, because it's driving me insane <laughs> thinking that it could or could not be Brett. I think that's that's definitely a possibility. That's one more thing WCW can sue them over, right there. Yeah, like, they're featuring their contracted talent. That's right. Still still showing WCW superstar Bret Hart in the opening of Raw. Why not? I mean, some of the other stuff was just as frivolous, so hey, go right ahead. So we begin this week with Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe walking to the ring to their usual unfavorable reaction. Vince says that as a result of his devastating clothesline to Steve Austin last week, Stone Cold has suffered a mild concussion. Yep, we're once again running with a concussion storyline because in 1998, we never could have possibly foreseen that there would be consequences if someone's brain bounced against his own skull. Jim Ross, however, speculates that Vince may be bending the truth a little bit with that statement. Vince says that Austin will probably be looking for revenge, but if he were to try and come after the three of them, he would be injured even worse than before. As a result, for Austin's own protection, Vince is banning Stone Cold from entering the arena tonight. Vince then cues up footage from just a few minutes before Raw began, where a fanny pack wearing Steve Austin tried to enter the building, but a nervous security guard told him he could not come inside. Stone Cold told him he was going to go to his truck, down a few Steve Weisers, and come back in five minutes. If the guard still refuses to let him in, he's going to have to beat his ass. That's actually very diplomatic of Stone Cold, like, I don't want to kick your ass, so I'm going to give you time to reconsider. We then cut back to Vince and the Stooges in the ring, and Mr. McMahon proceeds to bring out the man who he believes will be the next WWF champion, Dude Love. Foley is once again dressed in a suit and tie instead of his 1960s tie-dyed outfit, but he does enter to his awesome Dude Love theme song. El Duderino claims he is becoming stronger, more handsome, and more well-educated each day. He says his dream will come true at Over the Edge, and he is glad that Vince will count the three, Briscoe will ring the bell to signify the end of the match, and Pat Patterson will announce his name as the new WWF champion. Vince then calls out someone who he says stuck his nose in their business last week, Dustin Runnels. Dustin walks to the ring wearing a black t-shirt, 
black jean shorts and black sneakers while also sporting a bandage over his right knee from a recent surgery. Let me just say that if Dustin thinks this outfit is an improvement over the gold dust costume he burned last week, I must respectfully disagree. The tight black shirt he's wearing really accentuates the fact that he is, ahem, not exactly in the best shape right now. So Vince says that Dustin blamed him for all of his problems last week, but he needs to grow up and take responsibility for his own actions. Vince says that Dude Love is a man Dustin should emulate because he is a man who seizes opportunities, and he has an opportunity for Dustin tonight. If he beats Dude Love, he will become the number one contender for Steve Austin's WWF title at Over the Edge. If he doesn't, then Dustin will work for the next 30 days without receiving a paycheck. Dustin says he accepts that challenge and, quote, the sooner the better, so he proceeds to attack Foley. However, the Stooges gang up on him and help Foley get the better of him. Commissioner Slaughter and some WWF referees then run into the ring to break up the fight, but Dustin Runnels has now been given the chance to main event a pay-per-view. Martin, what did you think of this whole opening segment? Uh, I thought this whole segment was great. Agreed. Uh, Vince did his wonderful thing... This almost Mr. McMahon Vince, I I yeah. really like because I've not seen too much of the of this. I've always seen the eye swiveling. It was me, Austin. Yeah, um, <laughs> which uh, is also great. It's great, but for very different reasons. This this McMahon is somehow more sinister. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, everybody did well. Foley, I thought, was excellent. Oh, he's been nailing it, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Again, this version of Foley is one of the best things I've seen him do. I would agree. I mean, Dustin got a a huge reaction from the crowd. Yeah, very surprising. Yeah, yeah. Which makes it all the more perplexing. Oh, I was just going to say, it makes it all the more perplexing, given the fact that last week he interferes in the main event with Austin and McMahon, and then the next week he comes out, gets a good-sized pop, and then it makes it a little more perplexing how they book him later in the night but i guess that's we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit but yeah, yeah it was kind of uh it's kind of funny seeing you know dustin runnels no gold dust costume just plain boring dressed in black dustin runnels not boring but i mean just you know not he's not wearing gold paint anymore yeah. he's just himself considering uh, where he's been <laughs> right exactly um yeah i i thought all of this was excellent it set up the show it didn't feel the need to drag it didn't feel the need to be you know to be overly comical or overly dramatic mm-hmm. it just did its business i really liked it absolutely so we're off to a good start so we then cut backstage where jerry the king lawler is opening the door of a van and someone covered in a purple sheet emerges lawler runs into the same security guard from earlier who says he better not be trying to smuggle steve austin into the building the king says the person under the sheet is there tonight to watch his back and he lets the security guard peek under to see who it is the guard gives him the go-ahead, so they proceed to enter the building. Before we continue, this is going to mean very little to anybody except any British listeners. But here there is an ad campaign for a, um, a paper towel company, Bounty Paper Towels, and they're advertised by a Spaniard character called Juan Sheet. Oh, God. And throughout my entire notes, whenever the, the, the sheet appears, I just all I can think of is that advert of a very stereotypical Spaniard swinging into a woman's kitchen and showing her the power of this kitchen towel. Oh my goodness. Why is it one sheet like it's one sheet you tear off or yes, is that Yeah, because okay. it's apparently an incredibly strong paper towel 
and what the slogan is Juan Sheet does plenty. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. We used to have in the States we have bounty paper towels, but I think we had like the bounty guy or something like that, this big brawny dude with a mustache. Uh, yes, yeah, I've I've seen that referenced in The Simpsons. But no, yeah, or, or maybe wait. Actually, I take it back. That might be brawny instead of bounty. Maybe I'm confusing my. Uh, I'm confusing my paper I'm towels. Also, I'm also thinking that this product is actually called Plenty, but uh, <laughs> it's it's advertised by El Matador. So yeah, who the hell can I? Oh, fantastic! Well, then I'm. I will soon be a customer then. <laughs> so after a quick commercial break, we see that Lawler has somehow lost track of the man under the sheet already, but he quickly finds him on a nearby payphone. Lawler tells him not to wander off again, and they walk away. So, Martin, did you have any thoughts on Lawler soliciting the help of a mystery man to watch his back? Perhaps the aforementioned one sheet. <laughs> I this was great comedy, but I couldn't grasp that round my head. It's like, well, who is this, and why do they need to be hidden? Right. Well, well I guess we'll find out yes. later. Yeah. I, I actually was able to successfully guess who it was because I didn't remember this angle and I, I did guess who it was but by the same token I was like I don't know why that would be the person he's using as as his basically his bodyguard but uh, but more on that later we'll, we'll get into that so when we cut back to the arena Scorpio not too cold is already in the ring awaiting his opponent and that man is none other than Val Venus that's right folks this is the first ever match for Val Venus in the WWF. He walks to the ring wearing a white towel, and he proceeds to swivel his hips to the delight of the female fans in the crowd. Now, one thing I will note is that he did not cut a pre-match promo featuring a sexual innuendo, which later goes on to be a staple of his gimmick. I'll also note that there are a ton of Val Venus signs in the crowd, so it seems like those vignettes have really worked quite well. In fact, in a recent shoot interview in 2016, Vince Russo claimed that Val was the most over character he had ever seen before the character had debuted on TV, so I suppose he deserves a tip of the cap for helping him out in that regard. Also, Val is facing Scorpio, so I suppose that means they're debuting him as a heel? I understand that makes sense because his character is so full of himself and overly cocky, no pun intended, but you're, you've got to figure at this point in time, the fans were ready to root for a wrestling porn star, right? I suppose we'll see how that plays out. So the match actually got six minutes of TV time, so it was by no means a debut squash for Val. The crowd, however, was seemingly not all that into it, and to be fair, the match was just kind of okay, seemingly not a ton of chemistry between these two. The match ended when Scorpio went for a top rope moonsault, but Val moved out of the way, Venus then climbed to the top rope and hit Scorpio with a diving body splash, which he fittingly refers to as the money shot, and that was enough to pick up the three count. So, Martin, what did you think of the debut of Val Venus? I w I've never been high on Val Venus, because mm -hmm. you know, I, I just couldn't get past the ridiculous gimmick. But, right. <laughs> um, yes, this was a clunky match, but do you know what? The guy had skills. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, this is not. I would say this is not indicative of how he performs throughout the Attitude Era. He no, definitely gets better. But he, you know, for a, for a debut, it's as good as you could hope for. He didn't mess anything up completely. Yeah, sure. no, having no sexy promo at the start was very weird. Yeah, it kind of threw me off a little bit. Because you're just so used to the hello, ladies. That's <laughs> exactly. I I just couldn't grasp the fact that somewhere Rick Rude will have been looking at a monitor going look at this guy <laughs> <laughs> um, thinks, he, thinks I, he's better than me yeah. 
It was right to put him in with Scorpio, though, because, like I said, for all its clunkiness, at the very least, you were guaranteed some killer high spots. Definitely, and the crowd does pop for Scorpio every time he does, you know, the little, he does, like, the sort of uh, spinning his hands around like he's going to go for the 450. Yeah. I think, really I think some fans did get kind of pissed off that he didn't go for a 450. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Because I think there was a couple of guys in the crowd that were really, really wanting to see it. Yeah, well, he, he signals for it. He signals for the 450, and then he tries a moonsault instead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like the 450 is an awesome move, and that it pops the crowd. But I guess maybe you know he obviously wasn't going to hit it on Val Venus and win the match. So beyond that, and like I said, it's obvious clunkiness. Now this was fine. It makes me realize that Val was more than just a gimmick. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll definitely get to enjoy quite a few incidents with him in the in the coming weeks, which I'm personally looking forward to. But that's a whole other story. So yep, successful debut for Val Venus. Now one and zero in the WWF. So we cut backstage again, where Stone Cold Steve Austin, beer in hand, has returned to confront the security guard. Austin asks the guard if he will let him into the arena, but he still refuses. True to his word, Austin then does indeed beat the crap out of the guy by throwing him into a metal gate and then punching him in the face several times. Amusingly, then, Austin picks up the guard's walkie-talkie and says he's going to need medical assistance, so at least he was nice enough to do that for him. He then just walks into the building as I wonder to myself why the venue apparently only has one security guard. After a commercial break, we segue back into the arena where Austin's music hits and he heads to the ring to a huge pop. He grabs a mic and says that if, he, if there's ever going to be an episode of Monday Night Raw, you can damn well bet he's going to be on it, even if that means he has to crash the party. He says Vince's antics are making him more pissed off by the day, so he wants Vince, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe to come to the ring right now. Austin threatens to start smashing all of the $50,000 cameras if they don't show up, so apparently that gets Vince's attention, because then they do indeed enter at the top of the ramp. Austin says he wants all three of them in the ring tonight, not for a wrestling match, but for a street fight. Vince says it wouldn't be fair if all three of them fought Austin, because they would easily beat him, so Austin will get to fight two of them tonight instead. Patterson and Briscoe each claim they would be ready to fight if Vince asked them to, but Vince will have to decide which of the three of them will be in the match. Austin says it doesn't matter because he's going to whip their asses, and that's the bottom line. Martin, what did you think of Austin beating up an innocent man and then challenging Vince and his stooges? Oh, such heroic actions by Austin. (laughs) But but yeah, he was nice enough to call for medical attention afterwards. Yeah, that was nice of him. It was very diehard of him. I wish there'd have been the next... If this... You know, if we had a three-hour roll then, now, we'd have sections of Austin, like, hiding around the arena taunting Vince yeah. over the uh, over the walkie-talkie. Yeah. Yippee-ki-yay, <laughs> motherfucker. Um, yeah, again, it was just enough of the segment to move everything around. It didn't feel padded. It didn't feel... How can I put this? It didn't feel bloated. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody's clearly there to see Austin. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, again, sets up the end of, you know, the, end of the show and doesn't feel the need to dick around doing so. Definitely. And actually, on that note, I did put a quick poll up on Twitter last week, basically saying, who was your favorite star from the Attitude Era? Was it Austin, The Rock, Undertaker, or Other? I felt bad putting Other because uh, it only gives you four options. So like Foley, Angle, Jericho all went into the Other category. But overwhelmingly, it was 70% Austin. Uh, Probably not too much of a surprise there. Austin was the guy at the time, obviously. And retroactively, I think people still see him as the guy from the Attitude Era, even more so than The Rock. 
I don't know if you would agree with that assertion. Would, would Austin be, if you had to think of one particular face of the Attitude Era, would you think Austin or, or would you think Rock? Oh, definitely Austin. No okay. No offense to The Rock, but Austin... Of course, of course. Austin was on all of the merchandise. Absolutely. So now it's time for another Edge vignette. This time he's walking through rainy streets, running directly toward the camera, randomly yelling and shaking a chain link fence while the narrator goes on about him heading toward the horizon undaunted like some Spanish galley's quest. What the fuck is up with these vignettes? They've aired three of them now, and if you ask me to describe what Edge's gimmick actually is, I think the only description I'd be able to come up with so far would be brooding trench coat weirdo. Now, Martin, you're a bigger fan of these vignettes than I am. What did you think of this one, or, or the Edge vignettes in general? Uh, they are wonderfully ridiculous. <laughs> Th- this is... Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you show. I don't want to say the word millennials, but you show like you know teenagers, etc. We thought this was cool, right? <laughs> Just the, the image of him shaking that chain link fence whilst yeah. talking about Spanish galleys. It's like he's like some homeless Don Quixote. Yeah, it's that's, and... that's the best way I can describe it. It's whereas the Val Venus vignettes were expli- quite explicit about what he is. The Edge ones are, like, completely the opposite. Yeah. The, the Val Venus vignettes were explicit in more ways than one. Yes. Um, but, yeah, the Edge vignettes, there was even one in terms of him being a homeless Don Quixote. And I think his first vignette, it looks like he's actually beating up a homeless guy in the first one. So, really, really kind of strange. I doubt this was the intention, but I get a real Todd McFarlane spawn vibe from this. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. quite a lot of the early run of that book was him living amongst the homeless of New York. Oh, so interesting. Like okay. demon superhero, at once being the protector of and disciplinarian of the underclass of New York. And I don't... Uh-huh. And the film was 97. So, and Vince Maybe. Russo is or was a big movie guy, so I, I don't know if he's taking some of those tropes. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe he watched the watched it on VHS and then got the idea. I... I I don't want to put ideas in his head, but every time I watch it, I just get that mid to late 90s image comics kind of vibe off of Edge. Interesting. I personally don't know the Spawn comic too well. I by, by the, this point, I know Todd McFarlane a yeah, little bit. By this point, you're well out of it. <laughs> yeah. Deliciously 90s. Although, yeah, there is Scuttlebutt that they're going to give him the cinematic, cinematic universe treatment. Interesting. The main thing I remember Todd McFarlane from is that he was a huge baseball fan. So anytime here in the States, in Major League Baseball, anytime someone would hit you know a record-breaking home run, he would basically be the one at auction who would buy yes. the record-breaking home run ball. So really random, but that's what I mostly remember. And I do remember the Spawn movie, I think, with like John Leguizamo or something like that in yes, it. Yes, yeah, um, as, as the, the violator. Yeah, wow, yeah. wow. Yeah. That sounds like that sounds like a Val Venus gimmick right there, or Val Venus movie. <laughs> it, it, it may as well be. The late 90s, ladies and gentlemen. It wasn't subtle. No. Actually, well, on that note, would you recommend watching the Spawn movie for our listeners at home? Yes and no. Yes, it's got Michael J. White in it, who is quite a good actor. Let's let's not beat around the He's not the best, but he's damn fine. The story, the basic story premise is great. The problem is that it relies too heavy on CGI effects, which do not hold up. Oh god! In ninety in ninety seven, I can imagine. Yes, in any way, shape, or form, they do not hold up. So you, it's it's almost laughable. Oh god! Back at it now, but John Leguizamo is clearly having fun. 
That's good. At least one person was. He knows it's trash, and he but he's happy <laughs> to get paid. Oh, on that note, more on trashy movies a little bit later, actually. Yeah. So, very brief mention. We'll get to that. So we then cut backstage again, where the man under the purple sheet is apparently getting his makeup done. Jerry Lawler tells him to stay focused because his job tonight is protecting him, and then they walk off again. Now, personally, at this point, I was hoping it was going to be the King's personal dentist, Isaac Yankum, under there, but I suppose he had prior commitments. So up next, we head back to the arena, where Sable is walking to the ring to a pop that was not quite Austin-esque, but it was sadly probably in the same ballpark. You may recall last week she kicked her husband Mark Marrow in the balls and then delivered a sable bomb to him, seemingly signifying the end of their relationship. She grabs a microphone and asks Marrow to come to the ring, which he does. For some reason, Marrow is looking awfully cocky for a guy who just got badly humiliated one week prior. Sable says she wants Marrow to be an adult about the whole situation so that they can have an amicable split. Why she waited a whole week to say this on national television instead of while they were at home, I do not know, but I suppose she has a flair for the dramatic. Mero says she may want to dump him, but she has apparently forgotten that she signed a contract two years ago which states that she has to stick by Mero, and then he pulls out said contract. Amusingly, you can see the contract actually says Sable instead of Rena Mero, and I feel like any lawyer with more than a day's worth of experience would probably have a field day with that one. Mero says that Sable has to stay in his corner, or he will sue her for everything she's worth. And I have to give kudos to Mark Marrow, I guess. He has apparently created the only managerial contract in wrestling history, which someone is unwilling to break. This segues us into our next match, Marvelous Mark Marrow versus Terry Funk. Pretty meh match here, but Sable made her presence felt at the end. Marrow hit Funk with a low blow behind the referee's back, then followed it up with his TKO finisher, which, for the record, Nikki Bella now uses in present-day WWE. However, Sable then got up on the ring apron to tell the ref about the dick shot, and Marrow was distracted by her shenanigans. That allowed Terry Funk to sneak up on Marrow and hit him with a DDT, which was enough to score the three count. Martin, your thoughts on the Sable-Marrow promo and or the Marrow-Funk match? The promo itself was... Fine, but neither of these people was put on this earth to deliver dialogue. Yeah, that is that is very true. It's hard for me to care. <laughs> I've yeah. never been one for Mark Mero. And it's not a you know, hate his gimmick but love the ring work kind of thing. I just don't think he's good. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, I I was just eager for the for that to get out of the way. When I saw he was wrestling Terry Funk, however, my ears pricked up. Yeah. Because I, I thought this, this has the potential for some kind of hilarity. Sadly, it wasn't, because <laughs> Funk is old and Mero is terrible. Um, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so we got, like, a really plodding, brawling affair. I was hoping for just a moment where Funk would snap and just hit Mero, like, far too hard. Right. Because there's plenty of stories of, like, Funk just forgetting to pull punches and just going full force. That's right. Well, and as we're, we're, I was going to say, as we're constantly told, Mark Marrow is a Golden Gloves champion in real life. So I would love for for Funk to have, have gone in on him. Uh, but just turn it into a shoot fight. Yeah, that's just me, though. I was glad when it's over, and I'm glad that Funk won. But I do Absolutely. not care about the brewing marital problems between Marrow and Sable. Yeah, apparently the crowd does, though, because she got a yeah. monumental pop. Although they might not have been popping for the angle, but just for boobs, I suppose. Yeah. So that's probably the sad truth of it. So up next, we head backstage where we see the security guard Steve Austin assaulted being accompanied by two real police officers. They ask a nearby employee where Austin is and he steers them in Stone Cold's direction. After a quick commercial break, we see the cops approach Jerry Lawler 
and the mystery man under the purple sheet, they take a quick look underneath and determine that it isn't Stone Cold under there, and then they move on. I was kind of hoping at this point they would reveal that it was actually a ghost, but alas, <laughs> no such luck. For them to, yeah, just, just whip the sheet and there's nobody there. Exactly. You And then Scooby-Doo and the gang can, I suppose, figure out what's <laughs> yeah, going on. It, it's the uh, it's the old arena janitor trying to scare away yeah. the, the people. And I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for you meddling kids. That's probably how the Scooby-Doo WWE mystery ends, I'm assuming. I haven't watched that, but... Uh, I, I, I can only hope. I've not seen it either. Yeah. Probably, probably not going to make a mini-episode out of that one. So back in the arena, it's time for our next match. DOA members Chains and Skull... Remember, Chains is the one with hair. This is not the two twins. Chains and Skull taking on LOD2000, who are without Sunny this week. So where exactly was she? Well... I don't know for sure if this was one of the occasions, but there are definitely reports around this time of Sonny no-showing several events while also beginning to develop an addiction to prescription medications. Add in the fact that her backstage heat around this time is reportedly at nuclear levels, and without spoiling too much, it should not come as a surprise that her days in the WWF are officially numbered at this point. Stay tuned. As for the match... It was short and pretty sloppy, including one particular moment where Hawk climbed the turnbuckle too early, and then another instance when both Hawk and Animal tried to pin Skull at the same time. The match then ended when, for the second week in a row, DOA pulled their twin magic routine as 8-Ball ran through the crowd behind the referee's back and rolled up Animal for the three-count, giving the Disciples of Apocalypse yet another victory over the Legion of Doom. After the match, Kevin Kelly went to interview LOD, and Animal yelled that they want a six-man tag match against DOA next week, but he wouldn't reveal who their partner would be. Martin, are you looking forward to the continuation of the LODOA feud? How diplomatic would you like me to be? Because I, Not at all. I have one note on this match, and it contains the words, fucking awful. <laughs> um, accurate. Th- accurate. Oh, this was just interminable. Yeah. As big a fan of the LOD as I am, there's only so much rose-tinted nostalgia before you realise, wow, they really are terrible at this point. Yeah, yeah. It's not just a storyline. Nope. Unless they were really, really well, you know, selling this angle hard. But (laughs) I I think it's just a case of, they're shit now, we better make this into the story. Pretty much, pretty much. Which is funny. They're, they're still pretty over, I will say. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're, uh, they've definitely seen better days at this point. And that would be an understatement. And then jazzing them up and turning them into, you know, not yo daddy's LOD is, uh, can only take you so far, I think. Yes, yeah. It works the first time because you think, holy shit, they look like badasses again. But then it's still the same old LOD underneath. Pretty much. Also, Animal looks like a really budget Scott Steiner. Yeah, with the short tights and the best haircut. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. If you put some face paint on Steiner, I could definitely see them being confused for each other. Which, by the way, I would love to see a face painted Scott Steiner now that I think of it. Scott Steiner in gear would be amazing. Oh yeah, Steiner's done a billion crazier things than wearing face paint, so totally in character. But yeah, apparently next week we have it booked for... The DOA against LOD and a mystery partner. So, William Rankin, stay tuned because that's going to be on your episode. Be sure to take copious notes on that one because I'm sure it'll be fantastic. (laughs) So, we then cut to footage from earlier today at the Briarville Medical Center 2, which I feel is the inferior sequel to the Briarville Medical Center 1. 
We see Paul Bearer and Cain getting their blood drawn so we can definitively find out once and for all if Bearer is indeed Cain's father. Now, here's the part that kind of ruins the mystique of Cain for me. He's not dressed in his typical red and black costume with the mask, which is fine, but he is wearing a black jacket with neon purple sleeves. Not exactly intimidating. However, he's also sporting a ski mask over his face, like he was ready to film an ISIS beheading video. So I guess that helps a little bit. But Martin, did this ruin the mystique of the Kane character for you a little bit? I had no knowledge of this whatsoever. No, Me neither. No prior knowledge whatsoever. So I, I first looked at it and thought, who's that guy sat there? And then <laughs> you realize, oh my god, that's supposed to be Kane. Yeah. Looking like someone who will be credited in a movie as Russian Gangster Number 6. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it, yeah. That was just hilarious. I would love yeah, you... for that cane to come back now. Oh my god, yeah. If they Neon purple cane, jacket cane. Yeah, if they need to freshen cane up, civilian cane <laughs> would be fantastic. Or comrade cane. Yeah. I mean, honestly, WWF, you couldn't have gotten a better jacket for the guy, at least. Like, the neon purple sleeves, of all things, is that really... Does that spell Kane to you? I mean, come on. That was out of fashion by 1998. Oh, my God, yeah. I'm starting to wonder if that was ever in fashion. Yeah, no, probably not. Probably not. Maybe in, like, uh, some some early 90s hip-hop videos. Yes. The, The idea that that's what Kane goes around as in between events just yeah. completely ruins the character. Absolutely. Just have him in full gimmick and put a t-shirt on him or something. There you go. Or or what the hell, it's it's only they're only showing it for, you know, a, like a minute at most in yeah. pre-taped footage. Keep him in the costume if you have to, you know? Just t- have him tear off a sleeve and do the do the blood that way. I also love how Jim Ross describes it as complicated DNA testing. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Not like that, you know, that grade school level stuff. Yeah, not that rudimentary DNA testing that, that most people do, yeah. Oh, man. Well, maybe in, in 98, I don't know how advanced the DNA testing was at the time. I know OJ obviously dodged the bullet three years prior, so <laughs> when DNA just... testing was not really what it was, what it is today. This is one of those things that the WWF will do its damnedest to bury. You know how yeah. you know, there's like certain things that they just re- you know, either refuse to acknowledge or they'll just never, ever bring up again. I'm sure that Casual Kane is one of those <laughs> things. Casual Neon Purple Jacket Kane. Oh, man. And now we open the second hour of the show with Jerry the King Lawler walking to the ring along with his mystery friend under the purple sheet. Jim Ross reminds us that Lawler is from Memphis, and tonight Raw is in Nashville, Tennessee, so the crowd may be friendlier to him than usual. The king and his friend head to the commentary table, directly in front of a fan who has a sign which says, Undertaker buried Jerry's baloney, which I assume is a sexual reference, but why? Lawler then proceeds to invite the Undertaker to come after him again, and then he reveals who is under the sheet, Al Snow, along with Head. Again, I'm not sure why Lawler picked Al Snow as the guy to protect him from the Undertaker, since Snow is not exactly known for being the most intimidating presence, but there you have it. Also, because Snow was frequently asking for a meeting with Vince McMahon last week, Lawler claims he will facilitate it as long as Snow is able to protect him. Snow demands to see Vince now, so Lawler gives him some instructions, and Snow walks off to take a seat in the front row. Martin, what did you think of the revelation of Al Snow as Jerry Lawler's bodyguard for the night? Confusion that 
Lawler would seek out Al Snow. But I guess yeah. I guess the the joke is that there's nobody in the WWF willing to protect Jerry Lawler. Yeah, true, um, true. But Al Snow is on my TV again. I am a happy bunny. Definitely. Uh, I I do like me some crazy Al Snow and head. A happy bunny suicida at bunny suicida uh... on Twitter. Quick, quick plug. But yeah, definitely, definitely a curious choice. And also the funny thing, without spoiling too much, because well, I'm not spoiling anything. He hires Al Snow to protect him from the Undertaker, and that does not come into play at all in this episode. Because yeah. <laughs> literally, Al Snow just spends the rest of the night sitting in the front row, not having to protect Jerry Lawler at all. So I guess you know it was just an excuse for him to to get on the show for a second straight week, uh, which is fine. But I was just a bit curious that you know the Undertaker, of course, never actually did end up coming after Jerry Lawler again. So. So I guess maybe that's because Al Snow did his job. The Undertaker didn't want to fuck with Al Snow. Perhaps that's it. Taker took one look at him in the crowd and thought, no, fuck no. Who you got, Jerry? Oh, Al Snow? Never mind. Fine, forget it. I'm not fucking with you. This segues us into our next match, Dude Love versus Dustin Runnels, who is now wearing a shirt with the letters F-U on the front and the phrase forever unchained on the back to spell it out for us. Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe head to ringside shortly after the match begins, although really, I think they should be training for a match tonight since at least one of them will have to fight Austin. Eventually, Briscoe gets up on the ring apron to distract Dustin, which allows Dude to sneak up on him and put him in the mandible claw, causing Dustin to submit in only 2 minutes and 20 seconds. Remember last week when Dustin burned his gold dust costume and then interfered in the main event, seemingly setting him up for a substantial push? Oops. Martin, what did you think of Dude Love quickly dispatching the artist formerly known as the artist formerly known as Goldust? This was depressingly brief. Yeah, seriously. Way to squander any kind of potential. I mean, exactly. you didn't have to push dust into the moon, but you saw the crowd reactions. You you may have had something there, but yeah. No. I mean, last week when he said Gold Dust dies tonight, the crowd was like, yeah, fuck yeah, woo! They were totally behind him. He's straight, we can like him now. Right, yeah, well, that's pretty much the underlying implication, that's yeah, exactly. That's pretty much the, the subtext of this, isn't it? Ex- yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, and also, it wasn't the fact that he got beaten in two minutes. It was also the fact that the Stooges didn't distract Dustin. Dustin got distracted by the Stooges. Yeah, that's true, that is so true. it makes him look like an idiot and a loser. Yeah, and now he doesn't get a paycheck for 30 days. So that just adds on to it even more. Yeah, not not good. Not good. Not, yeah, not good for, for poor old Dustin. Great for Dude so Love, because he's still got his, pay, his uh, main event. That's true, yeah. And he's got a and, new tattoo. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He's got the new tattoo, yeah. Which is a, a, and of course, it's permanent, obviously. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, the big red love heart with VKM. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the VKM part. Yeah, that was great. I completely forgot to mention that, but you're right. Yeah, Dude Love was sporting the heart tattoo with with VKM on it. Really, really furthering that corporate ass kisser gimmick quite a bit. So kudos to him for that. Yeah, again, this is why I love this this era of Foley. So, so, so good. Like the Dude Love thing, before I started this this podcast, I kind of forgot about this sort of in-between area. I remembered Foley interrupting as Dude Love when Austin and Vince had their match, mm-hmm. but everything between them, um, I remember, spoiler alert, that Over the Edge, uh, the, the match where it basically is, you know, Falls Count Anywhere, etc. I remember that being a really good match, but I didn't remember any of the in-between stuff, like Dude Love and Dustin Runnels having a match. Yeah. I did not remember that at all. But yeah, the promos he's been cutting, he's just been 
totally nailing it as the corporate ass kisser. So good for him. And maybe he can bring it back on uh, present day WWE. That'd be nice. That, that would be very nice. He's in the perfect position for it, people. Come on. Knock on wood. And this is why I don't watch Raw anymore. Exactly. I've, I've given up on Raw today, too. I, I gotta say. It's three hours long. I've kind of given up on SmackDown, too, even though I've heard SmackDown is, is the better show. Obviously, the yeah. the the quicker show being only two hours. Um, but yeah, I, I just can't I can't get into it, even though Owens is champ, which is fucking awesome. But I just I can't, you know, three hours is a, a big commitment. Uh, it, with Owens being champ, that's great. But I'm, I, I'll just cheer from the sidelines. Yeah. Although I do, I will admit that I do, I have been watching the pay-per-views when they're on. Yeah, yeah. Just putting them on on a Sunday night, but yeah, but not so much Raw or SmackDown. I'm getting really burned out on the sheer amount of the modern product. Yeah. It also kind of bums me out the splitting of the rosters, because it's kind of like, well, you know, half the roster is on one show, or more realistically, three-fifths of the roster is on one show, two-fifths is on another show. It, It kind of, you know, as opposed to previous episodes of Raw, where it's like, well... You know, the episode may suck, but at least, you know, yeah. Dean Ambrose will be on Raw or Cena will be on Raw. I mean, I wasn't personally looking forward to those things, but I mean, you could at least say, you know, Ambrose is going to be on the show. Cena will be on the show. Um, but now it's just kind of like, you know, with the rosters being basically halved, it's yeah, I, I can't get into it as much. Yeah, it just needs to find that good balance so that you, if you just watch the one show, you're not you're tempted not to miss the guys from the other show. Right. Yeah, you know, they just need to make the show that people you know do watch great, but the the expectation is that you will watch all five hours of WWE TV. God no. Yeah, no. <laughs> Plus NXT. <laughs> Plus pay per views. Yes. A pay per view every two fucking weeks now. Yeah, not fun. not fun. Like I said, we we said it on recent new new blood. We're seriously getting burned out. Yeah, and rightfully so. But anyway, back to 1998. So we go backstage where we see Stone Cold Steve Austin watching the match on a comically tiny 1998 television monitor. When he gets approached by the police officers from earlier, they tell him he's under arrest, and Austin confusingly asks, for what? So so apparently that means Austin was unaware that assaulting innocent people was against the law? After a commercial break, we cut backstage again where Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe have now joined the scene. Vince admonishes a handcuffed Austin by saying he just had to enter the building, but now he's going to get what he deserves. Vince's only regret is the fact that he won't get to beat up Austin in a street fight tonight after all. So Martin, what did you think of Austin getting arrested yet again? It's always fun to to watch Austin. Austin is like the one person in wrestling that can do this well, I can only assume mm-hmm. it comes from personal experience. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, it's like they handcuff his hands, but of course he's still kicking with the legs. You know, right. It, it's it. It's very very believable. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the fact that Austin just knows that he'll be out. Yeah. It's it's not it's not yeah, forever. Yeah, I like that he's willing to make that trade-off. Like, yeah, I beat up an innocent guy, but I'll be out. Yeah. I'll be out pretty soon. It's, I'll be out in time for the next raw. It's it's an odd trait to admire <laughs> but yeah it, it it works so well within the confines of the anti-hero character definitely your number one baby face in the company the guy who beats up an innocent man backstage yeah good stuff so our next match is kai and tai members dick togo and men's Teo versus the headbangers and for the sake of posterity i'm just going to mention this for anyone who is listening to this podcast sometime in the future the headbangers actually appeared on an episode of SmackDown Live just a few weeks ago on August 30th, 2016. That's right. 
moderately popular Attitude Era tag team, The Headbangers, appeared on WWE television in the year 2016. That should tell you all you need to know about the current state of tag team wrestling on the SmackDown roster. But anyway, back to 1998. So Kai and Tai jump Mosh and Thrasher from behind before the match starts in order to gain a competitive advantage, and apparently that was a smart move because the ref just rings the bell to start the match with no penalty for them whatsoever. So frankly, I think more teams should just do that. This week's Sign of the Times moment is Jerry Lawler making a connection to Kai and Tai's Japanese roots by referencing the Matthew Broderick movie Godzilla, which was set to open just two days after this episode of Raw. It's kind of funny to hear JR talk excitedly about the fact that that movie will be having its premiere at Madison Square Garden that night because the world did not yet know what a piece of shit it was. Were we ever so young? But anyway, the match ended when Yamaguchi-san got up on the ring apron to distract the referee so Funaki could help Teo and Togo beat up the headbangers. But for the second week in a row, Bradshaw and WWF light heavyweight champion Taka Michinoku ran into the ring to cause the disqualification. For some reason, this Bradshaw-Taka Michinoku pairing makes me think of what JBL kept saying about Japanese wrestler Masato Tanaka during his commentary for ECW's One Night Stand 2005. Clearly the finest commentary moment of JBL's career. And also, since I'm light on audio clips this week, here's a clip from that same pay-per-view where Stone Cold Steve Austin requests something from a wrestler that he probably wishes he could have back. Where's Chris Benoit? Chris Benoit, give me a flying headbutt, please. Kill this son of a bitch! But Martin, so what were your thoughts on Kai and Tai versus the Headbangers? I can't really say that I enjoyed it, but I didn't hate it. I agree, yeah. This, this, was, this was white noise. This was... Right. I did like Kai and Tai's, like, Japanese street thug gear. With the the bandanas and the the jorts, um, yeah, that's actually quite a good look. It just proves. Do, do you think Funaki's arch hair is a good look? <laughs> um, it makes him stand out. Now that I've said that out loud, seems more racist than I intended it to be. <laughs> oh no no. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah Funa- Funaki didn't get in the match. Yeah, they, they sadly, look, they look like punks. They look like thugs. Fair enough, I'll give them that. It's testament to how terrible the headbangers are in that the two of them can't lift up men's tail. Right. <laughs> like a child next to these giant men. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> we see a Swanton bomb on WWE TV in 1998. Gets no reaction whatsoever. Yes, that's true. I, I didn't even, I completely forgot to mention that. Yeah. And yeah, it wouldn't be an episode of Raw in the Attitude Era without a bullshit DQ finish. Of course. At least one bullshit DQ finish. Yeah. Uh, or, or a no contest. Those seem to be the uh, the yes. way of the day as well. No, but this was, this was okay. It wasn't offensively bad. It just wasn't particularly great. Yeah, just kind of filler. Yeah. So next up, we go backstage again, where we see the aforementioned Stone Cold Steve Austin sitting in the back of a police car as Vince McMahon and the Stooges talk with one of the cops. Is our main event street fight now off? It certainly appears that way. 
We then cut to more pre-taped footage with Paul Bearer and Kane at the medical center undergoing DNA testing. For you diehard Paul Bearer fans out there, if you want to see him freak out a little bit as a needle gets inserted into the vein in his arm, then this is the clip for you. Back in the arena, and it's time for Degeneration X. We get another sign of the times moment as X-Pac grabs a mic and quotes Public Enemy's song, He Got Game, which is, as you might expect, from the Spike Lee movie, He Got Game, which came out just two weeks prior. At least this time, he wasn't quoting getting jiggy with it. Hunter then proceeds to do his let's get ready to suck it routine, as a fan can be seen holding up a sign which says, Buffer Fears Triple H. Road Dog then does his Tag Team Champions of the World routine, references the Judas Priest song, You've Got Another Thing Coming, and then he sneaks in a reference to the original Island of Dr. Moreau, which Triple H openly says the crowd did not get. Clearly, they're a bit off the rails tonight. Billy Gunn grabs a mic, but sadly, there will be no talkie time for Mr. Ass tonight as the Nation of Domination's music interrupts and they head to the ring. The match is scheduled to be the New Age Outlaws defending their WWF tag team titles against The Rock and Owen Hart, but a huge brawl breaks out between the two factions before the match can begin. Commissioner Slaughter and a bunch of WWF officials attempt to restore order, and we even get a cameraman being knocked to the ground in the ensuing chaos. After a quick commercial break, we return to the ring and see that the match has now begun, so it looks like the Outlaws will be defending their tag team titles after all. Additionally, all other members of DX and The Nation have been escorted backstage, so it will just be the Outlaws taking on Rock and Owen without the possibility of anyone interfering. Right? Now, I don't know about you, Martin, but I thought this was actually a pretty enjoyable match. Owen continued his gimmick of biting someone's ear until it draws blood, which I had completely forgotten was a thing until I started doing this podcast, and this time the unlucky recipient was Road Dog. Eventually, Rock was able to hit the D-O-double-G with the Rock Bottom, which Jim Ross referred to as the lowdown for some reason, but Billy Gunn ran into the ring to break up the pinfall and save their tag titles. China then appeared on the ring apron out of nowhere to distract the referee, which enabled the Rock's over-the-edge opponent, Farouk, to run down to the ring and hit Rock with a pile driver behind the referee's back. Road Dog then pinned Rock as the referee turned back around, and the Outlaws picked up the victory and the successful retention of their tag team titles. Martin, your thoughts on this match and the escalation of the DAX Nation feud? I really liked this. Yeah, me too. Um, there was very little to hate. The, even the brawl at the start was uh, was fun. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it's the, funny too seeing the the sort of the genesis of the DX Nation of Domination feud, like very very early in its infancy. But because it's two big squads, it looks impressive when all of the members yeah fight. I mean, you've got like ten guys. Yeah, you know, and then there's China to throw into the mix as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, the only thing I got was the. Triple H is terrible. Made some really weird penis metaphor joke. Yeah, and so this is actually something I was thinking of too with Val Venus. How Val Venus is, you know, his gimmick becomes doing the sexual innuendo. But right now, that's still very much a part of Triple H's yeah. pre-match thing. Yeah. Also, The Rock did the people's elbow with the removal of the elbow pad. He did. Was that the first time, or that? Yeah, seen that may have been. Episodes than I have. Yeah, I, I don't remember him doing previously. Uh, he's done the people's elbow, but he's done it just with the standard elbow drop. Yeah. He didn't... He, it's not to the point now where he's, like, you know, motioning to the crowd and throwing the elbow pad into the crowd, because I think he just throws it to the ground yeah. at this time. Yeah, but it's, but, it's yeah. fun to see the act kind of come together. Yeah. 
again, also very early in its infancy, the people's elbow. Still, obviously, we know what that goes to be when it pops the crowd. And again, honestly, the people's elbow kind of bothers me a little bit when used as a finishing move because it's like that was the move that literally ended cm punk's 434 day title reign i was kind of like really why not you can't just do the rock bottom you have to do the people's elbow like a friggin elbow drop is going to end that 434 day reign but whatever the lowdown right (laughs) he should have done the lowdown obviously yeah uh, again the whole owen owen hart vampire (laughs) um, yeah that again i had no recollection of so weird so, and actually oh i also forgot to mention road dog referring to him as cannibal lector in his opening promo yeah. as well so which uh, beautifully plays into it he made, mentions that beginning then owen proceeds to do it to him in the match exactly yeah well he, he can't say he didn't have it coming yeah beautiful absolutely beautiful stuff yeah i'm not big again the outlaws are a, a team that i'm not particularly big on like in yeah. 20 years of hindsight particularly when they brought them back and gave them the tag belts in oh, 2013 yeah. that really yeah, what a, me off so, such a questionable decision <laughs> yeah but here great absolutely great plus I got to got to see Rock and Billy you know in a match Rock and Billy? exactly that's exactly the, where my notes go no Rock and Billy oh, done absolutely got to reference Rock and Billy which is the worst gimmick in the history of gimmicks ever and let's not yeah. forget they've been wrestling magicians before that's true. Ah, shout-outs to Fantasio. Yes. If you're a listener, Fantasio, come on, get get at us sometime. Give us a give us a tweet or something, or, or write us an email. We want to hear from you. Big Fantasio fans. My only beef with this was, um, I think this is the first time since Owen joined the nation that The Rock and Owen have teamed up as the co-leaders of the Nation of Domination, yeah. and the first time out they lose. So, I mean, that that's one thing that I would say is, is a bit question, questionable from a booking perspective yeah, but no, no. other than that yeah other than that solid match and you know great fun to see the rock and owen team up against the outlaws so Very yeah much so. rock and owen could have been a hell of a team oh man yeah I, I, retroactively uh without spoiling anything rock and owen do not ever win the tag team titles but i mean as co-leaders of the nation that would have been kind of a cool thing if they put the belts on them so we then cut backstage where we see that stone cold steve austin is handcuffed but he has not yet been taken to jail. The cops tell him he will be free to go if he merely apologizes to the security guard who he bludgeoned earlier. Austin says, quote, I'm sorry I had to beat your stupid ass, and I'm sorry for you being so damn stupid. He then puts the double bird right in the guard's face, but apparently the cops think that's good enough because then Austin is uncuffed and allowed to leave. Note to self, if I ever want to commit a crime, move to Nashville, Tennessee to do it, because then I can give a half-hearted apology if I'm caught and presumably just go back to committing more crimes. We then cut back to the arena where Kevin Kelly is in the ring with Dr. Chuck Woosley from the Briarville Medical Center. Kevin asks Dr. Woosley if Paul Bearer is indeed Kane's father, to which the doc verbosely replies, I can honestly tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, without any uncertainty, after exhausting all of our analytical methods in determining fatherhood, Paul Bearer is the biological father of Cain. So there you have it, folks. A man in a lab coat said so, which means it has to be true. Once he finishes his lengthy sentence, the lights go out, which heralds the arrival of Cain and a very happy Paul Bearer. The proud father immediately grabs the microphone from Kevin Kelly and proceeds to botch his first sentence by saying that he was not, quote, the little boy that howlered wolf. 
He then amusingly refers to himself as the fat man who tells the truth because he was being honest about Cain being alive and also about being his father. He then tells the undertaker that his mother was nothing but a damn two-bit whore, and apparently that's all Taker can stands. He can't stands no more, as he then runs out from backstage. He punches Bearer in the face, chokeslams Kane, and then goes back to beating on Bearer. However, Kane quickly recovers and goes on the offensive, hitting Taker with several punches and then a chokeslam of his own. Bearer and Kane then put the boots to Taker until Vader runs out from backstage to make the save. While he beats on Kane, Bearer runs backstage and The Undertaker chases after him. Vader gets the better of Kane and clotheslines him over the top rope. Kane realizes that Bearer is gone, so he runs after him backstage. We are then told that Vader and Kane will meet each other at Over the Edge, with the loser of that match being forced to unmask, which Vader has done roughly 8,000 times so far at this point in his career. Martin, what did you think of this segment? This had just little bits of everything. It had drama, it had action, but most of all it had a big helping of just dumb, stupid comedy. Yeah. Bearer... For me, Bearer could do no wrong. I agree. I, I love Paul Bearer. Yeah, you know, the, the whole, I'm the, now the fat man who tells the truth. Yeah. It's like, well, you, you can't take the piss out of Bearer now because he's doing it himself. That's uh, true. And it, yeah, I mean, when Taker just runs down that ramp, and then having to chase Bearer back up the ramp. Yeah, which, punching him in the face yeah, and, and Bearer like slowly falling to the ground. Unintentionally funny, but still, still quite dramatic and then of course you know vader we, we need to somehow get vader in this so he waddles out um, <laughs> yeah it's it's weird how it just it doesn't kind of end it just kind of fizzles but it was suitably goofy because <laughs> I, right. I like me some wrestle crap some melodrama whatever you want to call it so this was this was right up my street what do you think of a mask versus mask match, Vader versus Kane? This, it means nothing, because you've said it, Vader unmasks all the time. Exactly, yeah. And also the fact that at this point, Vader is kind of a 450-pound jobber, sadly. Yeah. So it's kind of, And Kane is still once defeated only by The Undertaker. So at this point, it really seems like the outcome is not in doubt. And with a mask versus mask match, like, for example, if it's two luchadors... There are stakes there where, you know, if you remove your mask, it's humiliating because that's a part of who you are. But with Vader, if he loses, which obviously most people, I'm sure, would think he is going to lose, if he takes off his mask, we've already seen that a billion times. So, again, there are really no stakes, it seems, for that match. There's nothing, nothing to hang that match on at all. Just on the actual in-ring merits itself, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, other than this is going to be two big guys going at each other. Yeah, but I will say, spoiler alert, Vader does cut an amazing promo yes. um, after that match, and you probably know the one I'm talking about. We'll get to that, I suppose, in a few weeks. But yeah, that uh, is an amazing promo for uh, unintentional comedy reasons as well. So now it's time for our main event. Since Stone Cold Steve Austin has been released from police custody, he is now able to compete in the Handicap Street Fight match, which was booked earlier tonight, and it turns out that his opponents will be Gerald Briscoe and Pat Patterson, who each walk to the ring wearing shirts which respectively say Briscoe Brothers Body Shop and First IC Champ 
Rio de Janeiro. It's nice to see that Patterson is still committed to maintaining the lie that that Intercontinental title tournament in Rio ever actually took place, keeping that kayfabe alive. I'll also point out that since it was the late 90s, even Jim Ross had to get into the act with a thinly veiled mockery of Patterson's homosexuality. Well, the Briscoe Brothers body shop did a big flood there, and of course, Pat Patterson works there part-time. He does, does rear-end work there down in Tampa. Oh, JR, I expected better from you, but I'm not sure why. We're then told that there will be a special guest referee for this match. Commissioner Slaughter, who emerges from backstage wearing a black and white striped shirt. Stone Cold Steve Austin then heads to the ring to his usual huge pop. He gets in Slaughter's face and flips him off, but that proves to be, to be a mistake, as Slaughter then clotheslines Austin from behind as soon as he turns his back on him. The commissioner asks the timekeeper to ring the bell to signify the start of the match as Patterson and Briscoe put the boots to Austin. Patterson pulls some sort of object out from the front of his pants, yikes, and uses it to strike Austin. Briscoe goes for the pin, and Sarge attempts to fast count it, but he only manages a two count. Austin then just pops right back up, completely no-selling whatever that object was that Patterson pulled from betwixt his taint. Austin then spends the next few minutes beating on both men, culminating with stunners for each of them. Slaughter then attempts to put Austin in the Cobra Clutch, but Stone Cold escapes and hits him with a stunner as well. Strangely, both Briscoe and Slaughter stole the stunner as though it was a snapmare because they did a front flip when they took the move, so apparently only Pat Patterson knew how to sell it the right way. But anyway, the stunner parade causes Dude Love to run out from backstage. Austin quickly dispatches of Dude as well, clotheslining him over the top rope to the arena floor, where Foley then legitimately slips in a puddle of spilled beer. For a frame of reference, think of that time when Chris Jericho poured whiskey on CM Punk, then fell on his ass when he stepped in it. Good times. We then see a fan wearing a Steve Austin mask jump over the barricade and grab a chair. He then proceeds to level Stone Cold in the back with it, which Austin, once again, no-sells. Clearly, Stone Cold was taking some inspiration from Road Warrior Hawk tonight. The fan then removes his Austin mask, and we see that it's actually Vince McMahon. Austin and McMahon start brawling, but referees come out to separate them, which allows Dude Love to nail Stone Cold with the chair, and this time he actually does sell it. Foley puts the mandible claw on Austin, then he and Vince admire the devastation they've caused as we go off the air. Ah, but wait, what's this? If you watch the episode on the WWE Network, you actually get a segment called Extra Attitude, which gives us two more minutes of footage from after Raw went off the air. Briscoe gives Vince a hug, then all five members of the corporation head back into the ring. Austin recovers on the arena floor, then runs into the ring and chases after Vince. He throws Vince over the top rope and chases him up the aisle as the show comes to a conclusion. Martin, what did you think of this main event and the extra attitude segment? Well, considering this was the WWF champion against two old men, <laughs> this was better than it had any right to be. It was enjoyable, yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, Patterson, bless him, can really still do do the business. Yeah, he was even the the spot where he kind of like ran at Austin in the corner and put himself in the tree of woe. Yeah, he put himself in the tree of woe. That's yeah, <laughs> that could have gone disastrously wrong. Oh my god, yeah. So uh, yeah, and you're right. He's the only one that could sell the stunner correctly. Really shitty camera work meant that we didn't see Slaughter put in put on the Cobra Clutch, which right. would have been a nice nostalgia thing. 
And it also missed uh, it missed also Foley's chair shot on Austin at the yes. end too. Yeah, exactly. I knew as, as soon as they cut to that shot of the fan because they he, they cut to you know what we discovered as Vince stood next to Al Snow, which was quite funny yeah. at one point because Al's yeah. looking really weirded out. Yeah, and when Al's looking weirded out, you know something's up. Right. Um, but yeah, also, I, was that was that uh, Lawler's way of getting him the meeting with Vince, having yes, Vince stand next to him possibly. in an Austin mask? Maybe, maybe. Oh, that would be beautiful if that was that was the case. If that was the yeah, only I, get out. <laughs> I don't know if that's where it goes, but maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, that was the first instance of, it was me, Austin. Right. <laughs> Which, it was that, me as Austin, Austin. Yeah, that, that was the first thing that ran through my head. Yeah, it was weird to... Without the extra attitude stuff, you got like the end of the show was like the hero really beaten down. Yeah. That's something that WWE is kind of reluctant to do these days. Yeah, they want to send the fans home happy so often, it seems. On TV, and then, yeah, the, you know, the, the post show stuff does, you know, it was intended to send the live crowd home happy. Then Austin gets up, kicks a little ass, and chases Vince out of the building. Without that, it's great with it it kind of takes the edge off i agree yeah yeah it does you know nearly 20 years of retrospect and by adding a deleted scene almost it robs it of some of its power yeah it's kind of like the it's like the han shot first moment right yeah but as it as it stands it's a hell of a way to build a show it makes this all seem like a credible threat yeah definitely which is that, no small feat because yeah. it's it's dude love. It's yeah. a, a hippie from the '60s being built up as a uh, well, now as a corporate champion. But I mean, the dude love character was initially pretty goddamn goofy and probably would not be seen as a serious contender to the WWF title. But they're doing a good job of putting it in that direction. Exactly, they've done all of it right. You you initially you look at it on paper and think dude love, and yeah, you kind of think of the goofy dancing hippie, and also when you think that. In his corner, he's got three, you know, aged men. <laughs> yes, right. But again, this all works. This is this is this is how you do one of these authority angles, right? I agree. Great, great fun. I would say that that yeah. main event yes, for sure. Definitely, like I said, it was nice to see Patterson and Briscoe because they will do some really humiliating stuff. Oh my god! In years later, but this was this was just dynamite. I loved it. See King of the Ring 2000 for a frame of reference. No, um, don't see King of the Ring. Or don't. Yeah, good. I actually have. I had a friend who um, my the co-host of the Rundown, Adam, who's been on this show, was at King of the Ring 2000. Oh. And yeah, it was in Boston. Yeah. And I think he's basically said that I think he was with his uncle, and he was basically like his uncle was not a wrestling fan, and that did not go out of his way to make his uncle a wrestling fan let's just say that it's not one of the things you bring out to show people the best of the art form is it no no trying to convince someone that wrestling is good you don't bring out like the katie vick segment do you yeah or or any sort of bra and panties matches yeah probably not but anyway certainly quite a bit more to discuss here so with that in mind let's go to the wrap-up Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. 
the ratings recap. So actually, before we get into the ratings, I want to quickly mention a few noteworthy moments from WCW's Slamboree pay-per-view, which aired the night before this episode of Raw. So in the main event, Scott Hall swerved the world when he turned on his longtime pal Kevin Nash, hitting him with a tag belt, and therefore costing the Outsiders the WCW tag team titles in their match against Sting and the Giant. Honestly, Martin, I didn't even remember Hall ever turning on Nash, so I guess that about says it all in terms of this angle for me. Do you remember this happening? Because I did not. I vaguely remember them not being a team, i.e. them being opposite sides of the whole NWO Wolfpack equation. I had no idea that it was it was a heel turn essentially or a face turn, whichever way you want to put it. Yeah, a heel a heel turn for yes. Scott Hall. Yeah. yeah, I had no idea that was the case. I thought they'd just split them up just because. So yeah, it shows you just how memorable that was. Yeah, I I honestly thought they were together like their entire time in WCWs. This was this was news to me, but uh, yeah. So Scott Hall at on the Slambury main event. Uh, which was a WCW tag title match, the main event, basically turns on Kevin Nash. In other action, Eric Bischoff defeated Vince McMahon by countout because, surprise, surprise, Vince didn't accept his challenge from last week. I wonder if Bischoff would have sued the WWF anyway, even if Vince had actually shown up. (laughs) And in one other noteworthy moment, WCW held a cruiserweight battle royal with the winner of the match immediately getting a shot at Chris Jericho's cruiserweight championship after the match concluded. Now, it should be noted that Jericho had beaten Dean Malenko at Uncensored two months prior, which caused the usually calm Malenko to become frustrated, and he then told Mean Gene Okerlund he would be going home, presumably because he thought he could no longer get the job done in the ring. So this resulted in super cocky dickhead heel Chris Jericho belittling the absent Malenko for months, including making fun of Malenko's dead father and mocking his in-ring prowess in Y2J's infamous Man of a Thousand Four Holds promo. As for the Cruiserweight Battle Royal, it came down to Juventud Guerrera and the masked lucha wrestler Ciclope. However, instead of fighting each other, the two of them had a stare down and then seemingly had a conversation, and here is what happened next. What is this all about? I mean, they're not moving here. This is about respect for each other. I guess other. it is, yes. They, they face each other many, many times. Sure, both luchadors. Come on, Nick Patrick said, let's go. Let's get it on here. Little handshake. Good, good. May the best man win. Wait, wait a minute. Hoventude just eliminating himself. Hoventude just eliminated himself. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Zico play. What's he doing here? He's unmasking. He's unmasking. Zico play. He's back! The man of a thousand holes! The man that will face Jericho for the title right now! Everyone standing! And we're off and running! Oh, I've never seen Malenko like this! Have you ever seen him with this acceleration? What Jericho said about this man, the way he's talking about his father who's passed away. Jericho, you're in deep, deep doo-doo tonight, pal! Of course, Malenko absolutely destroys Jericho, puts him in the Texas Cloverleaf, scores the tap-out victory, and wins the WCW Cruiserweight Championship for the fourth time. Awesome moment, and personally, I think one of the really great moments in WCW history, but that's just me. Martin, did you enjoy Dean Malenko as Ciclope? Yes, definitely. I'm with you. It's one of those defining WCW moments. Short of Diamond Dallas Page being La Parker in his feud with yeah. Savage. That was great. That was great. Yep. Um, but yeah, the, the, the crowd roar when Malenko takes off 
the mask. Definitely. Like, huge, huge how, pop for Malenko. Yeah, how invested they were in Dean Malenko, of all people. Who yeah, is, which is a credit to Jericho, too, I would say. Exactly. He, is, he I mean, Malenko is one of the greats in, in ring work, but he didn't, you know, he couldn't exactly, you know, ignite a, a mainstream crowd. But thanks right. to Jericho being such a dick to him, everybody just went along for the ride. Absolutely. So when WCW did it right, it did it right. That's, that is a great way of putting it, yeah, because this was, I mean, this is mid-card stuff. This is cruiserweights where WCW, you know, obviously all the stuff that gets the press is the main event NWO shit that goes on for too long. And at this point, you're right, it's the Wolfpack thing with Hogan and Nash being on opposite sides. But yeah, this was a, a mid-card match, a cruiserweight battle royal with presumably the fans not having too much interest because it's probably like, oh, you know, Hooventude's going to win and then Jericho will beat him. Yeah. But yeah, this having him dress as Sequel Bay really was was a really cool moment. And obviously the fans were really fucking into it. So yeah, kudos WCW. Actually, you got some stuff right from time to time. Awesome stuff. But anyway, let's get on to the television ratings. So last week, for only the third time in the history of the Monday Night Wars, we had a tie in the ratings as both Raw and Nitro ended up with a 4.3. Definitely a good sign for WCW that they've battled back to regain some momentum from the WWF, right? Well, this week Nitro was once again cut down to one hour because the TNT Network wanted to air the NBA playoffs in WCW's time slot instead. And in case you were wondering... The Utah Jazz defeated the Los Angeles Lakers 99-95 in a battle of two teams whose names are best explained in the opening of the classic movie Basketball. Soon it was commonplace for entire teams to change cities in search of greater profits. The Minneapolis Lakers moved to Los Angeles where there are no lakes. The Oilers moved to Tennessee where there is no oil. The Jazz moved to Salt Lake City where they don't allow music. So anyway, the point here is that the abbreviated version of Nitro was once again soundly defeated by Raw, this week by a score of 5.3 to 2.5. Certainly not the showing WCW would want for their episode of Nitro, which aired the night after Slambury. For comparison's sake, Martin, here is what you could have been watching on the shortened one-hour version of Nitro. Perry Saturn defeated Psychosis. Juventud Guerrera defeated Damien. What, he fought Jake Roberts' snake? And Goldberg defeated Glacier to retain his United States Championship. The show also featured an infamous promo from Eric Bischoff where he lowered a motorcycle into the ring and wore a crown as he bragged about how good it is to be king. He mentioned beating Vince McMahon in their match the night prior and also beating him in the ratings. Bischoff claims his professional television record over the past 100 weeks is now 98 wins and two losses, referring to WCW's performance in the Monday Night Wars, although I'm not exactly sure where he's getting that figure because Nitro has literally lost in the ratings three of the past five weeks, but sure. It also seems incredibly short-sighted to brag about how well you're doing in the ratings when you know that Raw is basically going to destroy you that same night because they'll be completely unopposed for two hours. But hey, any excuse for Bischoff to brag, he'll probably take it. So Martin, does that sound like an episode of Nitro you would want to check out? Uh, not especially. Um, yeah. The only thing I can bring to that is Damien, bless him, wasn't Jake Roberts' snake. Um, oh, okay. He, uh, he, the poor guy fell foul of television censors. Because his actual wrestling name, or his one in Mexico, is Damien Six Six Six. Oh boy! But he wasn't allowed to be called Damien Six 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 because 
of American TV's fascination with Satanism. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I, I think I played a clip a couple of weeks or a couple episodes ago of Dan Severn, uh, who did a shoot interview and basically said because he's Dan the Beast Severn, there was at, at one point a plan to turn him into an Undertaker disciple with 666, the mark of the beast, on his forehead. <laughs> and needless to say, Dan Severn shot that one down. Yeah. So, so yeah. Just the mental image of that. Yeah, with Dan Severn and his amazing mustache yes. with 666. Not, wouldn't, have, wouldn't have worked, I don't think. No, no. Best left on the cutting room floor, that one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so but, yeah, that nitro sounded like it sucked. <laughs> pretty much, and it was at least it was only one hour long, I guess. So there's that. Yeah. But uh, even still, probably probably skippable. Maybe check out that Bischoff promo if you want to see uh, an example of Schadenfreude, I suppose. Definitely. By that retroactively is. being yes. like, yeah, I'm I'm bragging about the ratings, and also I got crushed in the ratings that very night, and my company went out of business. So. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to retroactively go back and be like, "Oh, Eric Bischoff, you didn't know what was coming," then it's it's worth a look. But on that note, let's go to the raw synopsis. So, Martin, what did you think of this episode of Monday Night Raw? Again, I really liked it. I, Excellent. I think it's the case of having watched so many recent Raws. Not that they're especially terrible, but they do feel like chores. Yes, I agree. This didn't it's it's like two hours or well you know an hour 30 takeaway commercials it's mm -hmm. like the perfect length of time for a wrestling show it just yeah it just kind of is and this and episodes like this prove it again it at no point did it sag there was something noteworthy every segment even if that was that lod and doa had you know an utterly terrible match yeah <laughs> but that was still at least noteworthy and they have a feud going on. They weren't exactly just thrown together. Right. I, I can't find much to it in the way to complain other than a massive, massive dropping of the ball of, of Dustin Rhodes or Dustin Runnels. Yeah, big time. Yeah, I'll agree. I mean, like watching these episodes retroactively, it is kind of a breath of fresh air because even the stuff that's shitty is mercifully brief, mm -hmm. like the LODOA thing. You know, obviously I'm not looking forward to their feud, but I mean, at least I know it's not going to be taking up, you know, 10 minutes of TV time. It's probably going to be five minutes or even less, which I'm totally fine with. Also, the fact that a lot of the characters on the show, almost everybody seems to have an actual character. As opposed to today's episodes of, of Raw, where basically everyone's character is, you know, this guy's a great wrestler, which is great, and they put on great matches, but there's really the the incentive to care is a lot less, yes. I feel like, yeah. because there's no real there's no real character on the shows today. Now, sometimes so. you need that little bit extra. Absolutely. But yeah, I would say overall for me, for this episode, thumbs up as well. Debut of Val Venus, Austin causing more havoc. Dustin Runnels, Dude Love, furthering that storyline. Yeah, really, really enjoyable, I thought. Mm -hmm. So again, a, another another consistent uh, thumbs up for me. They're really, I guess, hitting their stride right now, I suppose you could say, because it's not that I've given a thumbs up to every single episode, because some of the early Attitude Era episodes were kind of crap. Yeah. But now they're really starting to hit their stride, I think, because it's been consistently enjoyable, at least since WrestleMania 14. They've been putting on really good episodes of Raw, so... Yeah, thumbs up. There's there's something to be said for you know when when you know you're you're on a hot streak, you have that little that little bit of confidence and that can show through and I think that's what we're seeing here. 
It's like they're finally finally clawing their way back on top in the Monday Night Wars. Yes. They have this new energy about them, you know, like a, you know, new revenue streams, etc. A new new fan base, a new attitude. Pardon the pun. And there's it, the overwhelming sense, just taking a step back and looking at the the company as a whole, it is one of confidence. Like I said, no, mm-hmm. we've 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 stuck through the bad times, and now we're going to reap the benefits. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the fact that this is kind of coinciding with, as you said, them finally defeating Nitro in the ratings. So there's that that incentive, I guess you could say, every single week for them to be like, wow, we have to put on, you know, the best possible show mm-hmm. so we can stay on top, so we can, you know, keep the the eyeballs away from Nitro and back on our product. So, yeah, I mean, again, I, and, you know, I, I've slagged Vince Russo plenty of times, but he does deserve a lot of credit, and Vince McMahon, of course, too, yes. yeah. um, for actually creating this show that has completely turned the tide from Nitro over in their direction and and made it a very entertaining show. So, mm-hmm. yeah, kudos to the Vinces for that. So there you have it. I suppose that's a good spot to end. So as always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. So Martin, before we depart, would you like to remind the fans where they can catch you outside of this fine podcast? Yes, yeah. Primarily, you can find me as one-fourth of New Blood Rising, the New Blood Rising podcast, on Twitter, at New Blood Pod. You can find my toy reviews at 4CRonline.com. And you can find me, myself, on Twitter, at Bunny Suicida. Excellent. Yeah, definitely check out the New Blood Rising podcast for sure. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely give it a wholehearted recommendation. And again, I have to thank you. Yeah, of course. And I have to thank you a lot as well for being an early advocate of the Raw Attitude podcast when I first started out and uh, basically it was just brand new. You were one of the people who was really kind of uh, getting the info out there on, on Twitter and things like that. So I definitely owe you uh, a tremendous debt. I was going to say, if I can blow a smoke, I really admire what you've done because to start a, a one-man show takes guts because I'm, I'm one of a, a quartet and I'm I'm just about comfortable in that. Mm-hmm. The idea of doing a show on my own just terrifies me. So I I, I admire the the stones it takes for you to get this thing off of the ground. Um, Thank you. Also, I am living vicariously through this because when I I did a a written blog of every night uh, every nitro of 1996, which I got yeah. through wrestling with years. I always wanted to to do it as an as audio instead of a, as a written blog but could never get over the psychological hurdle to do it. So mm-hmm. it's like to see you doing what I wanted to do was like, yeah, well, you know, this guy deserves all the credit for you know being able to do what I can't. I stole your gimmick. No, you didn't, sir. You took it right. <laughs> oh, God, I'm, I'm glad you think you, so. You and I would have... so much better than I did. I, well, I was going to say, I personally would have, if you still want to ever make that, uh, that Nitro 96 pod, you'll definitely have a listener from me, that's yeah, for yes. sure. Yeah, it, <laughs> it, That's the dream, but I can't see it being any time soon. Oh, okay. Well, even still, if you if you ever do it, just let me know. Will do. And I will, I will add that to my subscriptions and iTunes for certain. And of course, before we go, as is the tradition, 
Whenever a guest host joins the Raw Attitude Podcast, I must ask the same question. Do you have a match, promo, or moment that you would like me to play at the end of the show? If not, I will probably play my own embarrassing clip like, oh, I don't know, that time when the great Kali squashed The Undertaker cleanly and pinned him with one foot on his chest. Something like that. Just just spitballing. That's possible. Outside of perhaps more drunken JBL ECW commentary. (laughs) (laughs) The only other thing I could possibly suggest would be any segment in which the great Carl Lee was required to talk. Oh, perfect. Okay. God love him. I loved it when that man grabbed the mic. Before he had the the translator? Yeah. Fantastic. So take a listen for that. Hope you enjoy it. And I will catch you next time when Martin's new blood rising co-host, Mr. William Rankin, joins the show to review the May 25th, 1998 episode of Raw, which he claims is his favorite. Hopefully it stacks up. I guess we'll see. Hopefully it stands the test of time. Again, Martin, thank you very much for joining. Thank you for having and me. Always a pleasure, never a chill. Fantastic. Anytime, anytime you want to come back. We'll have you back again for certain. And for all you fans out there, we'll catch you next time out. Do you have any grass growing anywhere I can watch? I'm thinking about just... Uh, can I take a dump over the rail? Fat guy flying! Fat guy flying! Oh my God! He's got the glide path of a sofa. I remember when he was here, they used to say he sucked. And I said, no, he's not that good. You know where he got his name from, right? Somebody, somebody said, Mike, can you wrestle you guys? Uh, some. Wasn't that the 70s guy? One night only, and it seems like it's lasted 18 months. That looked kind of like the Hindenburg. That you know, crash. Jerry Briscoe's rolling over in his grave, and he's not even dead. Has he used a sword yet? He has got the athletic ability of a drunk element. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand any of this? Can you help me against Mark Henry tonight? Do you have my back? I mean... I understand. You are small. I have never seen anyone dominate the Undertaker like this. Never! Watch out! They're pooped by Kali! Undertaker is nearly helpless. Oh my god. What the hell are you kidding me? I can't believe this. What the? I can't believe this. Here is your winner, the great Kali. The great Kali has pinned the Undertaker. One, two, three, in the middle of the race. Listen, I don't know if I believe what I've just seen, but I've got to. 